Again, welcome back. Always good to uh, come back after Easter. The pastoral world goes, oh no, Christmas is coming. Oh my goodness, it's almost Easter. It's summer, where is everybody? That's, that's kind of how it goes. Right? I hope your Easter weekend was, was refreshing, recharging. I hope you got a chance to celebrate, enjoy your family and all the like. Uh, we're, we're starting a new series today that we're calling follow. And I wanted to start off by telling you about my understanding of Christians and Christianity before I met Jesus. Now, up front, the fairest thing I can say about that is I guess I really didn't understand anything about Christians or Christianity because I didn't grow up in the church. For anybody who's just recently come here or is unfamiliar with us, that's because I'm Jewish. So it wasn't that I grew up in a household full of people who are anti-church. I was Jewish. So I didn't have anything against Christianity. I just had no knowledge about what Christianity was or how it really worked. I just knew that Christianity was a religion. And I knew vaguely that churches had something to do with that. And I'm not kidding you when I tell you that. I really didn't put those things together my, my youngest brother was born in Miami. He was born at the hospital that was closest to our home. It's Baptist Hospital. And I was in my 40s before I put that together. That Baptist Hospital was somehow connected to the Christian faith. Like that's, I just thought it was a word. Okay, Holy Cross Hospital. It's just a word. Mercy Hospital, just a word. I didn't know. Now, most of you probably could relate to that if I just give you a different illustration. You probably have a similar understanding when it comes to Islam. You know that it's a religion, but you know that it's not your religion. And you know that there's things that you have to believe in all that stuff, but it doesn't really impact you because it's not your thing. And as a result, regarding Christianity, I thought I knew about Christianity but I only thought I knew about it because I was picking up stuff from the world around me, and here's what I picked up. Now, I grew up in the 1970s. Well, I probably actually finally grew up in the 1990s, to be honest, but (laughs) technically I grew up in the 1970s. And so I was familiar with um, televangelists. Now, if you're around my age, you'll recognize these two folks. I, I was asking the younger folks back at the sound booth if they recognize them. Of course, they don't. But uh, these were two televangelists, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. You can Google those and see what became of them. But for anybody who doesn't know, televangelists are pastors who broadcast their message on television. So that's the name that they got. I really didn't understand what they were all about. But I did have this kind of vague awareness that they were Christians. And that was not a good thing, as far as I knew. People generally didn't think very highly of televangelists. To me just watching from the outside, not being a part of the club, it looked like they were only interested in trying to force people to live lives that were stunted, really, as far as I could tell, by the imposition of what seemed like countless oppressive rules. Now, I was also familiar as a a kid with certain public figures who prominently identified themselves as Christians, but they seemed to only exist to attack other people. This is a tougher one, Some of you will get it. Some of you won't. Anybody? It's Phyllis Schlafly on the left and Anita Bryan on the right. They're the ones I recall. 
And as I remember watching them and listening to them on television or reading about them in the newspaper, kids, a newspaper is like the internet, but on paper. Anyway, they, they seemed only interested in imposing a very strict and very uncompromising set of rules on every single person. So here I am, okay, so I've got televangelists, I've got Phyllis Schlafly, I've got Anita Bryan, then I went to college. And my exposure to Christianity really came down to two people, Jed Smock and Bruce. I'm gonna call him Bruce G. He's a friend of mine. We'll talk about Jed first. That's a picture of Jed. Jed was an evangelist who preached on college campuses. By the way, since 1972, Jed's been conducting an open-air preaching ministry by going to college campuses all over the country every day and preaching. Now, by the way, Jed still does it. So from 1972 to today, he still goes all around the country preaching on college campuses wherever he goes. Now, Jed's tactic was an interesting one. His tactic was to shout at every student that walked by, every single one of them. And he would call them names. I won't say any of the names here. They're kids in the room, but he said some unkind things. And he called his style confrontational evangelism, which, by the way, if you know what evangelism is, you know that confrontational evangelism is an oxymoron. It doesn't make any sense. But anyway, his intent was, was to throw spiritual rebukes at people, hoping that he would hit one hard enough that they would turn to God, that they would repent. Well, I can tell you it did not work on me. It didn't work on anybody I knew. It really just caused me to believe that becoming a Christian would require me to follow an endless list of rules, and those rules had no appeal to me. Well, I joined my fellow students and really heckled Jed as often as I could. I would bring a can of tuna. I would bring a can opener. I would get free lunch from the Hare Krishnas, which was basically a vegetarian lunch. I'd have the plate, put my tuna on the plate. I could eat for free and scream back at Jed all day long. It's quite fun. That was Jed Smock. My other exposure came from Bruce. Bruce was a fraternity brother of mine. He was a Jewish guy. And one Sunday after a football game, my fraternity was cleaning the stadium. So the picture I'm showing you is a picture of Florida Field where the University of Florida Gators play. It's a 90,000-seat stadium, so it's a large stadium. And my fraternity cleaned the stadium after every home game. It was a thankless, horrible task. What we would do is we'd each be handed a rake, and we would line up from row one at the bottom to row 90 at the top, and then we'd sweep all around that 90,000-seat stadium, raking up in the aisles and off the seats and picking up all the trash and the half-filled cups of tobacco spit and whatever and alcohol and whatever else you saw on the ground, and that's what we'd do. Now, one morning, I was on row 50, and... Bruce was above me on row 51, and we were working next to each other. And up until that day, Bruce had been a wild guy, really. He had long hair. He was a drummer in a band. He ran with kind of a wild crowd. But that morning, he was just different. His hair was shorter. He was wearing a, a nice, clean polo shirt. If you've ever known guys who go to college, that's rare. He usually wore a torn T-shirt with a band name on it. He was wearing headphones. For those of you my vintage, Walkman. He was wearing his Walkman, okay? 
He was listening to music and he was singing loudly to music. So of course, I couldn't hear what he was listening to, but I did hear him repeatedly sing the words, I love you and Jesus and Lord. And I'm thinking, this is weird. And this little party guy, rock and roll drummer, Jewish guy from the West Coast of Florida, those of you who are thinking California, what, what's going on? So anyway, we're walking back when we were finished and I said, Bruce, what is happening? And he said, I met a girl and she led me to Jesus. And at that time, I hadn't a clue what that meant. And then he listed all the things he could no longer do. Because as a Christian, there were a bunch of new rules he had to follow and he was all about those rules. The rules he told me about were not appealing. They did not make me want to come to Jesus. So I, I remember thinking, well, if that's, <laughs> if that's what you want to do, Bruce, you want to live a boring life, that is none of my business. I didn't really have anything to do with Bruce after that. We have reconnected since. So that's what I wanted you to know, that to me, Christianity meant rules. If you wanted to be a Christian, you better be ready to leave anything you liked before and start following the rules. And after I became a Christian, after I prayed, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. Lord Jesus, I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. I turn from my sins now. I give you my heart. I give you my life. I want to trust you and follow you forever as my Lord and Savior. After I did that, I started talking to people, doing my research, doing my homework. I started talking to people who were raised in the church or who had been believers for a long time. And and here's what I found. I found that even though their experience with Christianity and their previous knowledge of Christianity had been different from mine, one thing was consistent. Most of them felt that Christianity was all about following the rules. It seemed to me that the Christian life was was really no more than just a big game of Jesus says. You know, like Simon says, Jesus says. Jesus says, go to church. Jesus says, pray. Jesus says, read your Bible. Jesus says, do this. Jesus says, don't do that. Stand up. Ah, Jesus didn't say, all right? And when people felt that they were doing well at the game, well, then God was happy with them. And when they weren't, God wasn't. And whenever they observed anyone not playing the game, they felt this immediate sense of superiority. And they felt this immediate need to go to that person and push and harangue and hector and harass and coerce the person into joining as if they believed. And so what they did was they would go up to people and they would say, listen, and this is the attitude. If I'm going to be miserable, you're going to be miserable too. If I have to follow all these rules, you're going to follow all these rules too. So let me tell you about Jesus. And that game never works. It serves only to make the people playing the game more judgmental and more mean and more jealous of the people who weren't bound by the rules of the game, Jesus says. Now, maybe, maybe you have a personal experience with Jesus says. Maybe you've become an expert at Jesus says. Or maybe you haven't been able to play that game at all. And you just quit the game altogether. And maybe it was the game Jesus says that drove you away from Jesus. Or maybe it's the game Jesus says that has you questioning why you're still playing the game Jesus says. And if you've ever found yourself thinking that all following Jesus is about is do this and don't do that, you probably don't view a faith in Jesus in the most positive light. And you certainly don't view a faith 
in Jesus in the most accurate light. So today, we're gonna start to kind of retrain your brain when it comes to following Jesus. Because if you could reorient your memory or if you could even erase this inaccurate view of a true faith in Jesus and install instead a biblically sound, divinely designed understanding of living a life for Jesus, you'd find yourself connected to a power that is guaranteed to change everything for you. Every single thing. So, let's pray, and then we'll get going. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together this morning. Thank you for a great Easter celebration. Thank you for all that you've given us. Lord, we're heading into a new series. We're heading into a new week. And God, we would ask that you would help us to stay focused on you, help us to follow you more closely, and help us to appreciate and love all that you've done for us and with us. God, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you were just to, to blank everything out, tabla rasa, just clear the table, clear the, clear, the, clear the table, clear the tablet, clear the books away, and start out with a blank slate, and then just pick up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, the four accounts of Jesus' life found in the New Testament, here's what you would find. You would find that a faith in Jesus is, at its core, relational. Incredibly relational. In fact, that's what Jesus was saying when he said this in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you want a relationship with the Father, you've got to come through me. It's all about relationship. And specifically, there were three ways in which Jesus spoke of that kind of relationship. First off, Jesus said that our relationship with God is like the relationship between a father and a child. He told us that we could call God Father, and he explained to us that God is our perfect Father. In John 20, 17, Jesus said, Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I I am ascending to my father and your father. See, this was new. This was a new way of thinking about God. To my God and to your God. And then Jesus also said, But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to, again, your father. We're to call God, we're to think of God as our perfect father. And then Paul came along later and he clarified the relationship in Galatians 4. He said, because you are his sons, and by the way, you can fill in daughters there, that that does apply and works there. Because you're his sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, father. By the way, the word Abba means means father, but it's, it's an it's a informal way of addressing father. A lot of people like to think of it as kind of like daddy. It's not quite that gentle and all that sort of stuff, but it is, and it's like saying dad. Hey, dad, kind of like that. So we call him Abba, father. So you are no longer a slave, but you are God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Okay, so you get to inherit from your father. God is our father. Now that's pretty relational, right? Well, next, Jesus continued. And he spoke of our relationship with God like that of a vine to a branch. John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you can bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So think about that. A vine 
gives life to a branch. And as long as we, the vines, I'm sorry, a branch gives life to a vine. And as long as we're vines and we stay connected to the branch, we'll grow and we'll change and we'll be productive. You have to stay connected. Also very relational. Finally, Jesus spoke of our relationship with God as one between a shepherd and his sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Now, this one's not quite as relatable to us as the others, is it? I mean, anybody here 10 sheep? Anybody? I mean, yeah, we're not sheep herders, but, but they were. But we understand that it points to the way that shepherds tend to every aspect of a sheep's life. They tend to their safety and their health and their well-being. It's a very close relational connection. All this to say that if our understanding of a faith in Jesus is anything other than it's a relationship, we've missed the point. We've missed the point entirely if we don't get that. Jesus has invited us into an extraordinary relationship. Okay, is everybody okay with this so far? No objections? All right, now we're gonna move on to the question that all of that begs. And when you say it begs a question, it means when you hear something, you, everybody's really thinking, well, wait a minute, what about, right? So the question, it seems to be, well, how do you do this? How do you have a relationship with an invisible God? And that's what we're gonna be talking about in this series. So throughout the Gospels, again, throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the word that Jesus came back to over and over again is the word that we designated as the title of this series. And that word is the word follow. Jesus extended an invitation to follow to every kind of person. He invited rich people and poor people to follow. He invited spiritual people and unspiritual people. He invited religious people and irreligious people. Jesus invited all kinds of people to follow him. And today we're going to look at one of those invitations. If you've been coming to church for a while, you've probably heard the story before. You probably recognize it. If you haven't been coming to church for a while or you don't know the Bible stories that well, you're going to like this story. This story is found in the book of Matthew, Matthew's gospel. It's the first book in the New Testament. It's one of the four gospels. And it's a story that Matthew actually wrote about himself and his experiences. And here's what Matthew said. In Matthew chapter nine, verse nine, Matthew wrote, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. Remember, this is Matthew writing and he's writing about Jesus's encounter with him. So he's writing about himself. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, Briefly, for anybody who's really not been into Bible study or new to Bible study, I want to talk to you a little bit about tax collectors. Now, in Jesus's world, there were sinners and there were tax collectors. And what I mean by this is, to the Jews of Jesus's day, tax collector was a sin class all by itself. Tax collectors were not just your run-of-the-mill, everyday sinners. They were loathsome, nauseating, traitorous, disgusting sinners. I'm not positive what the modern equivalent of the kind of sinner that the Jews of Jesus' day considered the tax collectors would be. Perhaps think of somebody who abuses infants. Maybe that would give you a similar gut reaction. Just think about a sin that you find repugnant, and you'll probably find yourself in the right frame of mind to understand the story. 
But a tax collector was a Jew who would go out and collect exorbitant taxes from his own people, from other Jews, on behalf of their Roman oppressors. So the Jews found them irredeemable. They were blood traitors. The Jews hated the tax collectors. The Jews didn't permit tax collectors to enter the temple. They weren't allowed to worship. And the Jews actually banned tax collectors from society. So tax collectors couldn't associate with regular people. They could only associate with other tax collectors and other outcasts like lepers or or drunks or prostitutes. I mean, that, that was their world. The way it worked was, and the way you became a tax collector, is kind of interesting, Rome auctioned off the right to collect taxes in their provinces. So Rome sold this license, sold the right. So who could buy it? Well, you'd have to be pretty wealthy. So wealthy people bid on the privilege because if you own the right to collect taxes in a region, you could make a ton of money. It's a really lucrative investment. You could make as much money as you wanted. As long as Rome got paid their share, you could charge whatever you wanted. You got to keep everything you could collect over Rome's portion. That, that's really lucrative. And by the way, there were no shortage of Roman taxes to collect. Romans had poll taxes, bridge taxes, income taxes, food taxes, harbor taxes, road taxes, road crossing taxes, wine taxes, property taxes. There's even more. I'm not going to keep going. But I mean, suffice it to say, remember the Beatles song, The Tax Man? Anybody? Yeah, it was like that. The tax everything. Okay, that's what they did. So when a person became a tax collector, they were immediately branded as a traitor to their community. And they were immediately hated by the people in their community. So Matthew was one of those people. And so Matthew was thoroughly hated. By the way, if you've seen the show, The Chosen, if you haven't, I encourage you to watch it. There's an app you have to get on the app store, but watch the show. The way they portray Matthew is just brilliant. And you really get a sense that they hated Matthew when Jesus called him. It's very interesting. Anyway, Jesus approached the tax booth where Matthew was sitting and let us continue to read. Jesus went from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said, Follow me. Follow me. So by this point, just so you know, historically we set the timeline. Jesus had already called a few of the disciples, but not all of them. He'd already called Andrew and Peter and James and John. So now he's getting ready to call Matthew. So picture the scene. Jesus is at a dock on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is a huge lake, actually. It's kind of like, think about the Great Lakes. Like They kind of look like the ocean, but they're not. They're lakes. So the Sea of Galilee is just is a huge lake. It's actually referred to in the scriptures, Lake Gennesaret. And so it's a huge lake, and Matthew is sort of stationed there next to the lake at a tax collector's booth. So it's like, think of a toll booth. It's kind of sort of like that. So Jesus walked up to the booth, and he struck up a conversation with Matthew. Now, the people of the day considered Jesus to be a teacher, to be a rabbi. That's Hebrew for teacher. So it wouldn't have been anything out of the ordinary for a rabbi to want to teach the tax collector a thing or two. So it wasn't weird that he walked up to him. But Jesus said something to Matthew that Matthew would never forget. Jesus looked at Matthew. He looked at this reviled tax collector and he said, follow me. And the scripture doesn't tell us much more. It doesn't give us any more details. But I imagine that anyone following Jesus at that time who heard Jesus say to Matthew, follow me. Anybody who heard that had to to be thinking, ugh, you gotta be kidding me. Did you hear what he just said? He just said to the tax collector, follow me. Can, can, you be, can you believe he said that? 
And I'm guessing that the disciples that were already with Jesus were even less thrilled with that. I imagine Peter said, or at least was thinking, and and if you remember Peter, remember Peter's the one who didn't hold his tongue until he was asked if he believed in Jesus at the end, but we talked about that. Peter Peter would tell you right away what he was thinking. And I imagine Peter either said or thought, if that tax collector is gonna follow Jesus, that means he's gonna be with me, and that is not okay. I am not hanging around with that tax collector. But anyway, the interaction continued. Jesus asked Matthew to follow, and it was Matthew's turn to respond. Now think about this. Matthew just had given up everything. He, he decided to cut himself off from his family, from his people, from his community. He was already an outcast, but he is making a ton of money. And I'm sure that because he was making a ton of money, he was living a good life. He was living a life of abundance. He was living a life of comfort. And you would imagine that Matthew would respond to that invitation like this. He would have gone, yeah, thanks. No, thanks. No, 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 no. I'm not walking away from this. No way. But that's not what happened. Instead, Matthew got up and followed him. Matthew 9, 9. There's not a lot of detail there. That's all it says. And, it, and it's natural to wonder, come on, was it that simple? You tell a guy who's making a ton of money, who'd already made all these sacrifices, already been kicked out of, the, out of the community. Oh, okay, I'll follow. It probably made Jesus' followers kind of scratch their heads when it happened. They're like, wait a minute, what? And it likely also made the religious people who were following Jesus around, trying to figure out what he was up to all the time. We'll talk about that in a second. It probably made them wonder, come on, is it that simple? It would have been highly unusual for a rabbi to invite a tax collector to be one of his followers. When a person followed a rabbi, both the rabbi and the student became forever linked to each other. It's, it's kind of similar to when you go to a college or a university. Now, you and the university are linked together forever. It, you really see it. Anybody go to Harvard here? Any Harvard grads here? We've had some in the past. I don't see any today. Good, I'll bust on them a little bit. It's kind of like when you go to Harvard, you tell everybody you went to Harvard for the rest of your life in the first 30 seconds of any conversation. Test it out. It works. And if you went to Harvard, I, God bless you. you know, it's great. It's, I didn't get in, so it's really good. But you're linked together forever. It was, it was a big deal, for example, that the Apostle Paul studied under a rabbi by the name of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the most prominent teachers, prominent rabbis of his day. So the fact that Paul studied under Gamaliel was an incredible resume line. Paul was forever linked to Gamaliel, and Gamaliel was forever linked to Paul. But Jesus asked Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him. Now, now here's what Jesus didn't say. Jesus did not say this. Church people today might say this, but Jesus didn't say this. If church people today were asking Matthew the same question, if they were the ones doing the asking, church people today might say, Matthew, if you're willing to behave better, follow me. Or Matthew, if you're willing to repent of your horrific sin of tax collecting, follow me. But Jesus didn't say that. Jesus just said, follow me. Now, here's what's significant about this, and we're going to talk about this for the next few weeks. This is the same invitation that Jesus extends to all kinds of people. Follow me. In fact, the question we're going to be considering together in this series is, wouldn't it be great if we could learn to rationally consider, without over-spiritualization or over-complication, 
Jesus's simple invitation to follow. Wouldn't it be great if we could just consider that? Wouldn't it be great if we can just ignore all the Jesus says stuff that we already believe that we have in our minds? If we could ignore all the I'm gonna obey God, I'm gonna obey all the rules approaches that we've tried and just focus on the question, am I following Jesus? All right, so now let's try that. And if it seems too simple for you, you're not alone in thinking that. It seemed too simple for the religious people in Jesus' day too. In fact, this story continues. And in the very next verse, here's what Matthew said happened. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. So it jumps from follow me to Matthew's house. If you're paying attention, you might be wondering, well, wait a minute. We're just at the tax collector's booth. Like one sentence ago, now we're in the tax collector's house. How did that happen? And if you think Peter and the fellows had a problem with Matthew walking around with them, Can you imagine how they felt about going to Matthew's house? Being inside this sinner's house? It's not difficult for for you to imagine Peter saying, "Uh, (laughs) there is no way I'm going inside a tax collector's house. That would have been a scandal. But that's what Jesus said. Jesus and his followers were going to get together with Matthew at the place where Matthew was most comfortable, even though Jesus knew that it would be poorly perceived. But Jesus was focused upon beginning a relationship with Matthew. So Matthew's house it was. So here's what happened next. Well, Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with Jesus and his disciples. See, this is a bigger deal than we might realize. Peter's personal preferences, Peter's prejudices might have made this visit very unpalatable to him. But he was hardly alone tax collectors were so bad that even other sinners didn't want to associate with them. That meant that Matthew's only friends were other tax collectors or outcasts from the Jewish community. So that's what's happening. So you have this group of tax collectors and community outcasts and Jesus and the disciples are sitting at Matthew's house. So it means they're sitting there with some pretty hated people, pretty reviled people. The disciples were not likely to be comfortable there or pleased about being there. But check this out. Jesus was fine. Jesus was extremely comfortable. Jesus was very much at home with people who were not anything like him. And apparently, as you continue to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, people who were nothing like Jesus were very comfortable with him. So he was comfortable with them and they were comfortable with him. Jesus, even though he is God incarnate, even though he is, Andy likes to say, God in a bod, he was able to communicate with and relate to tax collectors and sinners and people who were nothing like him. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But first, you know what this means? It means that if you're not a religious person, if you still have questions or you're not so sure about all of this church stuff, and if you feel anything other than totally accepted and loved by us here at Hammock Street Church, if you feel any sense of discomfort sitting here in this gathering of God's people, you need to know something. You need to know that if you feel discomfort, it's not God's fault. It's our fault. It's not Jesus's fault because Jesus was extraordinarily comfortable with people who were nothing like him. And they were likewise with Jesus. They liked 
Jesus. When you read the Gospels, you see those people following Jesus everywhere he went. This means that Jesus would like you. It means that Jesus wouldn't be put off by your sin. It means that Jesus wouldn't be uncomfortable with you, even though he knew everything about you, everything you've ever done, every thought you've ever had, everything you've ever done. So I want you to think about it. If you ever hesitated to consider Jesus, if you were thinking, if you knew what I've done, or you knew who I am, you wouldn't be talking to me about Jesus. And I will tell you, I have heard people say that a hundred times. If you thought that way, you can put that out of your head once and for all. Jesus said to Matthew, the tax collector, follow me. So we're going to continue. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So what's going on? Okay, so here we have the Pharisees. They were the very religious men in that society. And they were commenting on Jesus' visit to the home of a tax collector. So there are a few unwritten details here that we can safely assume. It's dangerous to assume things when you're reading scripture, but some things you can absolutely assume. First off, you can assume, in as much as the tax collectors had not been invited to Matthew's house, but they still were paying attention to what was going on. They must have been following Jesus. They must have been following his followers from afar. They must have been sitting back and watching what Jesus was up to, which would place them outside of Matthew's house during this meal. Next, we can assume that the disciples must have been walking in and out of the house from time to time to basically communicate with these Pharisees and then come back into the house. And finally, The Pharisees must have been watching what was going on in the house closely enough to know what was going on inside. I always kind of think of the Pharisees like the religious paparazzi. You know, they're kind of standing around. They're looking at Jesus. What's he doing? What's he up to? What's he up to? And so the Pharisees are watching Jesus. They're watching what's going on at the house. They became confused. And they're thinking, "Uh, he's a rabbi. He's a holy man. We're we're holy people. He's a law keeper. We're law keepers. He, He worships God. We worship God. Why didn't he invite us? Why didn't he invite us to this dinner? And why would he choose people to invite who are nothing like him instead of people like himself? People people like us, the Pharisees probably thought. Which brings us to a really weird part of the story. Jesus is sitting inside the house. He's around the table with Matthew and all Matthew's friends. And they're eating supper. And they know the Pharisees are outside and being all judgy and everything. Somehow Jesus heard what the Pharisees were saying. So we don't know exactly how that happened. Did somebody come in and tell him or, I don't know, did he supernaturally hear it or whatever? But he heard what the Pharisees were saying. And so verse 12 tells us on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So Jesus said this to send the Pharisees a message. But imagine that you're Matthew and you heard it's not the healthy, but the sick. And you're thinking, hang on a minute. It's not the healthy, but the sick. But the sick, but the sick. Hey, wait a minute. Who are you calling sick? You're sitting in my house, Jesus, and you're insulting me and my friends by calling us sick? And and then you're saying that those creepy stalkers, the Pharisaic paparazzi, they're the healthy ones? What the heck, Jesus? I don't know if that was exactly what he said, but I'm going to guess it was the mood of it all. I'm guessing Jesus looked at Matthew and he smiled at him because he loved to do this. And he said, come on, Matt. They were on a close basis by this point. Come on, Matt, you're a tax collector. 
you know there's something about being a tax collector that isn't quite kosher. I'm pretty sure he said that. It's not kosher. He said, come on, you know you're sick. And it was true. Tax collectors knew very well that their job and the way that they had to conduct their job was at best ethically questionable and was in fact a horrible thing to do their own people. They knew they were sick. It's not all that different from me explaining to everybody that every one of us is a sinner. I have to tell you, I've been talking to people about sin for a long time now, and with the very, very limited exception of just a handful of very unself-aware, self-righteous people I've encountered over the years who consider themselves to be God's gift to the world, just about everybody I've ever talked to about sin has at least reluctantly admitted their own sinfulness. We all kind of admit it. We all admit we're sinners. We all admit we're all sick. We know it. We break rules. We even break our own rules. We make rules for ourselves and we break them. We do it all the time. We do and we say and we think things that we know are not right. We know that they're wrong. We know that if there's a judgment awaiting us, we're in big trouble. We're aware that if the standard of perfection is Jesus, we all fall short. You, you knew that before I just said it, didn't you? Now, Jesus was far better at it than I could ever, ever hope to be. He told his disciples to tell the Pharisees, I'm here with the sick people because they need me. Jesus came for the people who would look into the mirror and admit, I need help. People who need help are the prime candidates to be followers of Jesus. Okay, so Jesus mildly offended the people he was with, but he was just getting started. This next thing really offended the Pharisees. Let me tell you a little bit more about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were professional religionists. That's what they did. That was their job. They spent their entire day studying Scripture, debating Scripture, commenting on Scripture. They worked incredibly hard at being righteous. And they were supported by their communities for doing it. The communities paid their salaries. The Pharisees knew their Bibles. The Pharisees were very confident in their own goodness. Nobody questioned the holiness of the Pharisees. Well, almost nobody. So Jesus quotes for them something from their Bible, from the Hebrew Bible, from the Old Testament book of Hosea. Here's what Jesus said. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus said to these Pharisees, I've come to call the sinners, not the people who believe that they do everything right or the people who believe that they behave correctly all the time. Jesus came to join with the people who are striving to believe the right things, who are striving to behave in the right ways, but know that they often fail. Jesus came to call the people who don't believe the right things, and behave in the right ways all the time, which really should describe every one of us. We all should be painfully aware that we're not as good as we might appear to be when we come in here on Sunday. You know, I hope everybody knows that already, but just in case someone is unaware of that fact, you can test the statement out by answering the following question, and please don't raise your hand and don't scream it out, but answer the question quietly to yourself in your mind. So here's the question. Ask yourself, did I do, say, or think something this week that I would be mortified to share with everybody here at church on Sunday if Russell called me up here right now, handed me a microphone, and asked me to talk about it? Did you do one thing 
that you wouldn't want to come up here and talk about? I'm going to guess every single one of us just went, oh, now we're on the same page. And because of this universal fact, we better not ever come to a church. We better not ever become a church that is satisfied with just gathering together on Sundays and saying we believe the right things and behave the right ways and then just stop. That's not the purpose of being here. If we do that, we will find ourselves standing outside that very house that Jesus inhabits as he comes to talk to the sick and the sinners who need a savior. I got to tell you, I don't want to go to that kind of church. I don't want to pastor that kind of church. I don't want people I love to attend that kind of church. I don't want people I love and care about to attend a church that thinks that you just all need to believe the right way and behave the right way and that forgets that we've been called by a savior to come and partner with him to reach those who understand that they're sick and need salvation. That's what we need to be. There's more to this life than just this life. And we, as Jesus' people, have been called and privileged and given the opportunity to partner with him for those who would admit, I need help in this life. It's not enough to believe right and behave right. The church that thinks that it is stops there. And if they stop there, they will inevitably become a community of Pharisees. And I don't want that for us. They'll become judgmental and their mantra will become, as soon as you change, you can join us. And that was the Pharisees' message. Change and you can join us. But Jesus came along and he messed everything up. Jesus showed up and he said, no, join us and you'll change. Not change and you'll join us, join us and you'll change. Matthew, I'm not asking you to do anything except stand up and follow me. And we're going to your house. When the Pharisees questioned and complained, Jesus stood firm. They said, your master eats with tax collectors and sinners. And by saying that, they were implying your master eats with people who don't believe the right things and behave the right way. And he's a bad guy because of it. And Jesus told them, no, I'm not dealing with that right now. Right now, I'm only inviting them to follow me. I'm not interested in playing a game of Jesus says. I'm like a father. I'm like a vine. I'm like a good shepherd. I just want them to follow me. So that's what this series is about. We want you to know that Jesus' invitation is for you. So now, four quick points, and then we're done. I promise they're quick. Number one, being a sinner doesn't disqualify you. Being a sinner is a prerequisite. Every person that Jesus invited to follow him is a sinner, was a sinner, will be a sinner. The only people that resisted following Jesus were people who thought they were already perfect. Before Matthew prayed anything, committed anything, repented of anything, or promised anything, Jesus said, follow me. The scripture says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before anything happened, before we changed, there was no sin, no habit, no addiction, no illness, no problem that puts you outside of the circle of those who have been invited to follow Jesus. Being a sinner does not disqualify you. Number two, being a non-believer does not disqualify you. This is pretty interesting. We talked about this a little bit over Easter and, and during uh, Palm Sunday. None of Jesus' earliest followers believed at first. None of them, not a one. Time and time again, Jesus chastised them for the lack of belief. Where's your faith? Where's your faith? Think about it. 
One of Jesus' followers was such an unbeliever that he got a nickname for his lack of faith. Remember what his name was? Doubting Thomas. That's right, Bible scholars. It doesn't matter how little faith you have. Faith the size of a mustard seed. You're invited to become a follower of Jesus. Heck, it took the people who actually followed him and saw him physically three years to believe. And that was after a resurrection. Many of them didn't come to believe until after that resurrection. His own brother didn't come to believe until after that resurrection. The Bible makes it clear that you can start following Jesus before you understand all of it, before you get all of it. Number three, the invitation to follow is an invitation to relationship. This is, this is huge. This is important. An invitation to follow Jesus is not an invitation to obedience. Let me tell you why it's important. If you're married to somebody who obeyed all the marriage rules, put down the toilet seat, take out the trash, bring home flowers on Friday, all the marriage rules. And if you obeyed all the marriage rules, would you necessarily have a good relationship? You would not. I'm here to tell you. Rules don't make a relationship. Love makes a relationship. And Jesus is love. And Jesus loves us. And it's when we love him that we'll begin to do things differently. We'll begin to think differently. And Jesus is inviting us into a relationship to learn to do just that. And finally, four, following forces me to focus on where I am rather than on where you're not. This is why you have to follow. If you're a Christian and you're not actively following Jesus, you become a Pharisee. Our goal in our relationship with Jesus isn't to keep four laws or to say 10 spiritual things a day. Our goal is to the best of our ability to simply follow Jesus. Andy, Andy likes to say this, which I love the quotes. I'll put it up there. The more conscious I am of the work God has yet to do in me, the less critical I am of what God has yet to do in you. We have a full-time project on ourselves. I do not have to worry. We do not have to worry about how other people's project is going. That's what makes the body of Christ extraordinary. This is what makes the church, when the church is hitting on all cylinders, this is what makes the church fantastic. The best place on earth. Everybody, to the best of their ability, is moving in the same direction and learning to become better followers of Jesus. And when you find yourself in a group of people like that, it is very powerful. So, as we launch this series, the question is, am I following? The question isn't, what do I know? The question isn't, how well do I pray? The question isn't, do I know the scripture backwards and forwards? The question isn't even, how obedient am I? The question is, am I actively following Jesus? Am I actively, intentionally engaged in the process of following Jesus? See, Jesus has given us an invitation to relationship. And we are here to help you get started. And that's what we're going to try to do during this series. Amen? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for making it so simple. God, I just ask today that you give us each the wisdom to know what to do with what we just heard. God, we thank you. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.